0: This evening, Galatians 4, I would like to look into verse 9, which basically says, Now that you have known God. Now It's been a number of weeks since we've been in Galatians, and since we've had a bit of a hiatus, I'm going to take some time to do a review, a rapid review, and then move us right on into chapter 4. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, it's our privilege to be able to break the bread of life. We are happy that you have given us an opportunity to look into the scriptures in this new year. We pray that you speak to all of our hearts. We're so glad about what Jesus did on Calvary and how he redeemed us by his blood. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. Help me to speak with clarity and help me to simplify everything that's complex We do need the help of the Holy Spirit this evening in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. Galatians is one of the oldest of Paul's epistles. And this is a letter that very often is spoken of as a freedom epistle. Because it gives us the core and cusp of the gospel. And it speaks to us about the liberty that we now have in Christ. Having been delivered from Old Testament laws and rituals and from the things of this world, Paul teaches the people how to stand on their feet and to trust the Lord. The first chapter, Paul is giving a bit of his testimony. He's explaining how he came to know the Lord. He's explaining about uh, how the revelation of the gospel came to him. In chapter 2, We looked at how he had to deal with Peter and some of the hypocrisy that Peter was exhibiting by acting one way with one group of people, and then a totally different way when he was in the presence of another group of people. When we move into chapter 3, then the argument begins to be laid out where he shows that there are people who are Christian, but seemingly are moving away from the truth. And Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 3 that essentially someone who does that, they've been bewitched. And he takes us his example of what it means to be justified by faith, to be delivered from sin, trusting God, and experiencing the righteousness that only comes through a relationship with Jesus. Abraham becomes the model, and he uses chapter 3 to describe the function of the law, how that the law was never meant to be permanent. The law that God gave to the Jewish people was only supposed to be a temporary thing until we get to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, This is confirmed in chapter 4, where in verse 1 and 2, Paul explains that a child and a servant or heir and a servant are the same when they are babies, in the sense that Two toddlers playing with each other have no concept concept that one is the master and one is the servant or slave. They just play with each other, just like kids have no concept of you're a different color than I am. We're just all the same. However, the people that are raising the children know that the heir is going to be privy to some duties and responsibilities that the servant is not going to be able to enjoy. So Paul goes on to liken all of this in verse 3 to the fact that all of us at one time were children. We were in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So Paul is saying that the point of the gospel was to move us from a status where we seemingly are like servants, who are involved with servitude and some kind of a bondage to serve God out of fear or obligation to a place where we now have a status in grace because we're sons of God. And that relationship doesn't change. This is what Paul is working on. So these are the legal aspects of the relationship that we have with the king. And all of this is based on the fact that we are now adopted. So in ancient Rome, once you adopted a child, you could never unadopt a child. That's that's bad English, but you, you, you could never get rid of a child that's been adopted into your family in ancient Rome. So what Paul is saying here, that now that we have become sons of God, implanted within us is this desire to call God Father. So the person who's born again has a relationship with God. They instantly begin to know that they're a child of God, and that's why they can happily pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father. See, so that? what's hard in heaven. A lot of people have a hard time with that. If, if you grew up in a family where your dad wasn't necessarily the best father figure, then that doesn't change the image that the, that the Bible describes or the Bible provides of our Heavenly Father. In fact, we can learn about what a father should be by paying attention to the characteristics of our heavenly father in the scripture. And it it would work the same way if we were talking about a mom. The the Bible says when your mother and father forsakes you, then the Lord takes you up. That means he looks after you. He begins to care for you. So we look for our models from scripture. Now, that's the, the, the background. To what we're getting into now is we begin with verse seven. Six verse six tells us that we're sons, but now verse seven says Wherefore you are no more a servant but a son, and if a son then an heir of God through Christ. Now we can we can understand this better if we think about our places of employment and the application of it. If you have ever worked at a place that originated because of a family, then you understand that even if a family member starts at the bottom and they're sweeping floors and cleaning toilets, ultimately, even if you're doing the exact same thing with them, you know that in time they're probably going to be the vice president or take over the company, but you're not. And it's on the basis of blood, you see. So as a Christian, then Paul is telling us in verse seven, we've received a wonderful promotion in that we've stepped up from just being what we think is merely an employee. But we become a son of God. So God's relationship with us is different. And the benefit package is different. Now, Uh, we have privileges that other people do not have who do not have a relationship with God. And this is why he says, and if a son, then a heir. And the Bible teaches that a good man leaves an inheritance all the way down to the third generation, which is his grandchildren. So if it's possible and a person is able and you can set aside some resources, then set them aside for the ones down to the third generation. Now, everybody isn't able to do that. But the point of the, the, the lesson in Scripture is that when you had 12 tribes, the tribes were never allowed to sell their land. They had to keep their land within the tribe. So usually every family had something to leave down for the next generation because they all had real estate and property because God said you're forbidden to sell it. But when we think about God and the fact that we are heirs, that means that there has been a legacy or something left for us. Now, most Christians, if you say to them, what are some of the resources in your inheritance That are available to you. Most Christians probably can name three, four, five, maybe. But after that, they're going to start running out because they'll say grace and forgiveness and mercy and so on and so forth. And then pretty much they're done. But if you go to Isaiah 53 and you slowly start working your way through what Jesus did for you on the cross, you will see that the Lord did an innumerable amount of things for you. So when we talk about the riches of God's grace. We're, we're speaking of something that essentially is unfathomable. However, we are constantly trying to understand it. And, and you know as well as I do, everybody wants to be somebody's heir, especially the heir of somebody that's wealthy. Think about that. Now, if you, if you were called in, somebody had died, and, and a lawyer contacted you and said, uh, brother so and so, sister so and so, Mr. so and so, I'd like you to come for the reading of the will. If you knew the party and you knew the party died a pauper, there's a pretty good chance you wouldn't even be interested in going for the reading of the will. However, if your name was mentioned and a lawyer contacted you and they said, look, uh, Mr. Neff has named you in his will, I guarantee you, You're going to make sure that you do everything you can to get right there. Front row seat in the office next to the lawyer or whoever's the executor as they're reading off all the stuff. Because there's no telling what Darren and Amy probably left to you. Yeah. So this is why when we think about God, we, we are excited about the fact that we are heirs. But it's only because of our relationship to God through Christ. You take Christ out of the picture. There's no inheritance. There's no relationship. So anybody in this world who says, well, look, I I know God and I have a relationship with God, but I just happen to touch God in my own way. You know, you know, some people go to church. I like to spend Sundays out hunting. You know, I like to go out in the wilderness because when I'm out in nature, it's there that I feel like I can really connect with God. Well, you know, Romans one talks about you know, creation speaking and having a voice. I don't have a doubt that all the creation can tell you that there is a God and reflect that there is a God. But if you're going to have a genuine relationship with the Lord, there's no bark on the tree going to tell you about redemption. There's no flower going to be able to tell you about the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to have to have a relationship with the Lord that is discoverable only through the word of the Lord. So to touch God, I can only do that through Christ. And that's why he said, Except you come by me, you cannot get to the Father. And it's, it's, it's verses like these, like the last sentence of verse 7, that, that makes it difficult for people to believe that Christianity can be such an exclusive faith. But think about it. If you could be any and every religion and still have a relationship with God, there'd be no need for the book of Galatians. The whole point of the book of Galatians is to demonstrate that it's, To have Christ as your all in all. Not as one of many, but as your all in all. To be consumed by him. Verse number 8. Now then, when you didn't know God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Now the phrase, you did service, in the Greek says that you were enslaved. Now Romans tells us not to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness when paul begins verse eight by speaking of the period when they didn't know god now you have to think about this there are several verses in the bible that talk about in the new testament in particular that speak about people in their state when they didn't know god romans one then it goes into the long teaching on why homosexuality is a is a form of not, not only godlessness But self-idolatry, because people essentially promote themselves in the place of the image of God, their desires and their personal wants. That's Romans 1. But then Thessalonians also speaks about people not knowing God. So before we became Christians, we were slaves to our passions. We were slaves to various things of this world. We were slaves to the culture of this world, the ideas of this world. We didn't think so. In fact, we thought we were wise in our own eyes. As the Bible says, wise in our own conceit. We thought we were quite quite smart and, and brilliant. And in fact, Paul lets us know in verse 8 that we actually were slaves to things which really were not God's. Now, there are, I don't know how many religions there are in the world, but I do know there are a lot of deities that people worship but essentially Paul is saying here in verse 8 they are not gods because there's only one God so everything else is form of superstition in Corinthians Paul talks about the Gentiles sac- thinking they're sacrificing to God but essentially sacrificing to demons and that's, that's his language sacrificing to demons that is to say the devil appears to people and leads them to believe that what they are worshiping is true and credible and, they, and he gives them experiences sometimes visions and dreams and they have no idea in and of themselves that they're involved with delusion they have no idea i i give you give you some examples then <clears throat> muhammad said that he was in a cave and the angel Gabriel came to him and spoke to him about the religion of Islam. You know as well as I do, when you think of the name Gabriel, you instantly think of the story of the birth of Christ. Certainly his conception. That is where he got the name Gabriel from because he's familiar with the New Testament story. But the scripture says the devil will appear as an angel of light. That means he will come in a form that makes you believe he's real and he's true, and then people will have these visions and these dreams, and they'll think, okay, well, this this must be of God. Now, you've got more than a billion people today that follow that religion on the basis of a vision that Paul would say was false, okay? If you've ever seen on Fox News, back when Mr. O'Reilly was on and a few others, they used to have a group of people who were Muslims on? They were called the Ahmadiyya sect of Islam. The Ahmadians. Now the Ahmadians are not Muslims that are recognized as orthodox Muslims by the rest of Islam. However, they're very peaceful people. And so that's why they always had them on television whenever there was a terrorist attack. What people don't know is that the Ahmadian movement would be somewhat akin to how Christians think of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's unorthodox. It's not quite the same, you know, in the beliefs of a church. Because the Ahmadiyyans believe that their Messiah appeared back in the 19th century in the 1880s. So if you already had a Messiah that come, that has come, then that makes you totally different than all the other Muslims because the Muslims say that Muhammad is the final revelation of God. So that's why the Ahmadiyya Muslims are are persecuted by the Muslims, but here's what I'm getting at. You still have hundreds of thousands of people that bought into the fact this man had a vision and said he was the Messiah sent by God to come redeem the world. Think about that. Okay? Same um, thing with Mormonism. Man says an angel named Moroni came to him, told him where he could find some gold plates up under a rock. He finds the gold plates tells people that they're filled with all kinds of hieroglyphs and goes to some scholar to try to get a scholar to confirm what is true. But when it's all over, the whole thing essentially is a hoax. But we still have thousands of people who believe that. Now, those are just a a few uh, popular religions I've mentioned. But uh, I'm telling you, most faiths like Christianity, began with some kind of supernatural event. So wherever God is doing something true, the devil produces a counterfeit. And what Paul is saying in verse 8 is, at one point you were a slave to a system that you thought actually was pleasing God, but they weren't gods at all. Now that has to be heartbreaking. To be involved with a, a, a religion and finally have your eyes open and realize this never, ever was God. And there are people who come to that revelation. So verse 9, he says, okay, now that you've known God, so you're born again, now you come to a relationship with the Lord, or, or rather, are known of God, he said, why in the world would you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements of the world? The reason he calls them weak and beggarly elements is because essentially, the powers that once bound individuals, these powers are impotent. They never could justify you. They never could redeem you. They never could save you. They could not produce in you what the redeeming gospel of Jesus Christ was able to produce. So why return to anything that cannot save you from sin, that cannot produce forgiveness of sin? And I've had people tell me, I don't know how you can even believe that one man could die on the cross and bear the sins of other people and you can find forgiveness because what somebody did 2,000 years ago. And my response usually is, I-, I don't know how you can. Seems sensible to me. You- you- okay, so-, so you tell me I- I've lost my mind because I believe He bore my sins and I trusted when I do wrong and I've done wrong that I can say, Lord, forgive me. And then I can believe that I'm instantly forgiven. And you say, that's crazy to have that kind of belief in your mind. Then I say, "Okay, what's your answer to sin? And most people don't have an answer. They just deal with sin on their own. They deal with the burden on their own. And and the way that some people deal with it, we end up in suicide because they can't deal with the burden of it. The 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 weak and beggarly elements of this world tend toward bondage, according to verse nine. Toward bondage. What does bondage look like? It it looks like a person whose mind is enslaved to sin, but they'll tell you they're a free thinker. How many conversations with atheists have you had where they'll say, Well, There's just no way in in this world I'd ever allow my mind to be tied to some book that's thousands of years old. You allow your thoughts to be guided by people who have been dead for thousands of years. And then what's the appropriate response? Well, they'll say they make up their own mind. Well, that's somewhat true, but not entirely true. Sure, they're able to make up their mind. They have freedom of will. They can make choice. But essentially, all the beliefs they have are based upon what they've heard other people tell them. Because since infants have been coming into this world, we've all been learning from different people. So it's a matter of all the information being put in. So when a person says to me, okay, well, I'm not following Paul. Maybe not, but you're probably following Oprah. Okay? they say, well, I I just don't believe in anything that those Old Testament prophets have to say. Maybe not, but you probably listen to Dr. Field. Okay, so somebody's listening to these folks, I'm telling you. The same way somebody's listening to the people in Scripture. But, but ultimately what we have to determine is what is going to guide how we live in this world and then what we believe about what's taking place on the other side of our last breath. Now the names that I mentioned that are on television, they don't talk about eternity. This book does. And I wouldn't want to be involved with anything that only talks about living in this world. Paul said in Corinthians that if in this life we only have hope, we ought to be miserable. See, if, if, if at the end of the day we eat, we sleep, we dream, then we die, and there's nothing else, then he said we really ought to be some unhappy people because there are a lot of people in this world who do not go through this world with an easy time. So you, you take some some little kid in India whose sister was just sold by mom and dad because they can no longer afford to take care of her. And she's sold to a temple in order to satisfy the sexual appetites of different men who come to that temple. And so that's her life. She wants to be free. She wants to escape. Let's say she never escapes. But somebody shares with her the gospel one day. Okay. The gospel is the one thing that can change her life and give her some hope to to try to escape that life because to go through life from her birth to her death doing that, that's a miserable life. And there are a lot of people who who just don't have any hope. Uh, One of the, uh, when we were on this last trip to Africa, we were driving and we passed by this pond and the bishop was telling us that just a few weeks prior, that, or a short time before, a mother who's very poor, having a very difficult life, took her infant child, strapped the child to her back, took some rope, tied her other little ones to her wrists, one to her leg, and then went to the hill. Or just went over there to that, that, that pond and walked right out there and drowned her and her babies. Okay? Now, that that's a lady who had no hope. Because as far as she was concerned, there's a whole lot of people living pretty good, but she wasn't living pretty good. And this is what Paul means when he says, if in this life all we have is the hope that we have in Christ, but there's nothing on the other side. What's the point of all this? Yeah. So coming back to verse 9, then why in the world do you want to turn back to the weak and beggarly elements that never produce liberty and freedom in your life, but produce bondage? And here's how the new bondage manifests itself. In verse 10, you observe days and months, times and years. Very observant of the calendars and religious feasts. Now following a calendar is not all bad, okay? We do have Mother's Day, Father's Day. There is Memorial Day. Black History Month and so on and so forth on the calendar. But I don't know anybody who celebrates the 4th of July because they think somehow it affects their salvation. See? When people have check days. I don't think they're doing that because they think somehow by celebrating that culture that that's going to produce a greater relationship between them and God. No. So observances of cultural things are not are not bad. However, when you begin to apply the calendar to your spiritual life to the point that if you miss a certain feast or day or season in which you ought to worship in a certain way, And it's going to affect your life with God. That's trouble. That's like people that have calendars, and on the days they have certain days where you got to say something or pray something to a saint, or you got to do this or do that. And if you don't do that or do this or do that, you feel bad about it. Okay? You don't need to do that because God is God is saying through Paul here, your relationship with me is not about the observance of a particular day or month. The Jewish people had several feasts that they kept annually. There was a temple. And which people went to worship. But when Jesus died on the cross, the scripture says the veil of the temple split apart. There was never a need for another animal to be sacrificed in the temple, even though they were continually offered, even after Jesus ascended to heaven. But it doesn't mean anything. And so when I lived in Israel, somebody had discovered that there was a red heifer That had been found in one of the cattle flocks over there. Now the Old Testament teaches that the, the ashes of a red heifer are important. And so they, but, but the red heifer cannot have more than three strands of hair that are discolored. They all got to be of the same. Otherwise, it's something that's not acceptable to God. So somebody found a red heifer that only had two white hairs on it when I was living in Israel. And everybody was running around (laughs) and nervous about what to do. They said, look, got to get that thing sacrificed because God's going to be displeased if we don't offer that thing up. And even Christians were teaching on this in the churches. And I never understood it because I thought, okay, even if you offer up. This animal is a sacrifice of what value is it to me as a Christian? Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's of no value to me. But yet there are people that really believe they should observe these different kinds of months and days and celebrations. You don't need to. You don't need to. Your relationship with God is not based on that, and to be quite honest with you, if any of us had to go back in the Old Testament and try to memorize all the different days they had to do this and places they had to go on this day and all of that, we'd already be in trouble. I mean, I, I've been preaching over thirty years, and I still don't know all the all of the Old Testament calendar, and I'm not trying to learn the whole calendar for the for the Jewish people. Verse, verse eleven. So Paul says, "Now look, I, I'm." I am concerned about you, folks, lest I bestowed labor on you in vain. He said, I hope that I have not done all this teaching and preaching to you just for you to turn around and backslide into the very thing I told you in the beginning you no longer need for your spiritual life. And that's a heart rending statement because none of us like to see people backslide. Parents do not like to raise their children a certain way with certain values and certain beliefs, and then watch the children grow up and go in the opposite direction you know mm. and 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 pastors and people who are teaching the Bible to folks do not like to see people listen to the scripture, hear the word of God taught, and then go out and go the totally opposite direction yeah it would would break my heart to have young people grow up listening to me preach and then turn around and and go down the road or to another state and decide, you know what, I've heard all that. I want to be Buddhist. Really? See? Yeah. Now, it's not that people don't have a choice. Paul is just simply saying, I'm worried about you. You ever been concerned about people when you see the decisions they're starting to make? and the path that they're on, and the direction they're going. And from from where you're sitting, you're looking at the decisions they're making, and to you it looks like, okay, this is taking us further and further and further away from God. Whereas the person making the decision is saying, I feel like I'm touching God like I've never touched Him before. Yeah. I, I have had friends who have gotten caught up in the... The Messianic Jewish Movement. Uh, If you never heard of that, I'll tell you what that is. The Messianic Jewish Movement is a movement where Gentiles, that's people like us who weren't born Jewish, we we get involved with that, and then uh, instead of calling Jesus, Jesus, we start using the Hebrew name, Yeshua. We call him that. And then uh, we no longer want to use anything that sounds Greek or Roman. It has to be entirely Hebrew. And then for the ladies, the ladies have to start dressing, you know, kind of like the way the Hebrew ladies dressed as they believe they did. They, they got to start wearing all these little coverings and stuff like that. And they have to start keeping all of these laws, a lot of laws. And I have seen people get caught up in that and their life becomes one persistent claim of bondage. Because once you start trying to keep Old Testament laws, you quickly realize there are far too many of them that I need to memorize and keep. And it ends in depression, sadness. I've seen young couples end up in affairs because of that, because they got all this repressed stuff in them that they can't let out in any kind of a way, simply because of how they're being instructed on all of this. They have to observe certain things. You can only go to church Friday evening, Saturday evening. When you go to church, you can't go into a place where they're having church on a Sunday. It's got to be on the Lord's Day. So typically it's a small little home group of people. And then before you know it, you end up with deception and it gets worse and worse. But the whole time the folks are telling you, I'm getting close to God. I'm getting close to God. They walked away from the grace of God and the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 12, "I I am begging you. To be as I am, because I'm just like you. So you haven't injured me at all. Now what Paul is saying is, look, you need to pay attention to me. I'm your model. Follow me as I follow Christ. Look at how God de- delivered me from all of what I come through in my Jewish background. And with the the, the the things that I've known in my life, as I've been delivered from that and come to know Jesus Christ, you should become like I am, because I'm just like you. I once was a slave to a system also. But he does want them to know that even though you're making these choices, you haven't injured me at all. People that make bad choices, they don't necessarily hurt me because my relationship with God is not going to change. However, the person who is involved with these things, don't ever think about the fact that Somebody's going to have to try to come and rescue them later. If if I backslide tonight, your relationship with God is still secure. If you backslide tonight, my relationship with God is still secure. If you decide that you don't if every church decides they don't want to serve God at all and they don't have anything to do with Jesus, that doesn't affect anybody in here in the room. Because we can we can determine whether or not we're going to we're going to follow God and walk. Walk with him. And this is what Paul is, is saying to them here in verse 12. But he says in verse 13, you know how through the weakness of the flesh, I preached the gospel to you in the beginning. Now, I don't know what kind of a bodily trial or what kind of weakness in his body he was facing or dealing with. But I do know that in the midst of that, he still proclaimed the gospel. That's where I want to put the emphasis. Not, not on trying to identify what was wrong with him, but very simply to say that whatever he was dealing with, it did not keep him from telling people about the king. And this is essential for us. But you know how through infirmity I preach and my temptation, see my, my trial and my body, which was in my flesh, you didn't despise nor reject, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So whatever was going on with him must have been visible or noticeable to those around him. And despite what he was going through, they didn't reject him. Now, I can tell you how this works. I-, I can't remember this gentleman's name, but there was a guy, he's a minister. I don't even know if he's still alive, but he was in the Vietnam War. And... uh I forget what kind of a what kind of a grenade or something was thrown and that thing lit up on fire and just about burned him up, his face up and all that. But he lived. See? What's his name? Reaver. Reaver, Dave Reaver. And so. he He went through all of that. I mean, literally no face at all left. I mean, just skin and everything ripped off and, and, and he, he came back and his wife never left him. Never left him. Now, the, the thing that, that, that's remarkable to me is I, I was in North Carolina one time and he came down there to minister the word of God in the church where we were. I mean, there's a lot of people in there. And when, when he comes up there on that stage, this was 30 something years ago, he comes up on that stage to preach, then, you can hear the gasps. You folks had never seen them, they're just absolutely stunned. So, of course, when when you you hadn't seen that and somebody's so visibly affected, you, you have a hard time listening to what they're saying because you're focusing on what their physical defects are. Well, Paul says here in, in verse number 14, you folks didn't reject me or even despise whatever it was that was going on with him. That's important. They never allowed what he was passing through to prevent them from getting the essential message that he had to teach. And let's be the same way. See, whether somebody was teaching the gospel with one arm or no arms, or in a wheelchair, hear what they have to say. Don Jimmy Swaggart, before we came up here, there's a gentleman. He's still down there. On television, he very often leads the praise and worship, but people don't always notice as he's up there leading the praise and worship that on one of his arms he doesn't have a hand. But he's leading the praise and worship, glorifying God. So the the, the thing I'm trying to emphasize is it's not our physical perfection or our physical defects that matter. What matters is the gospel to proclaim the truth. Once we allow ourselves to be hindered by what we see, then the then the gospel is of no value to us at all. But verse 14, he said, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So two things, the angel as a messenger of God. And then he goes on to say, just like Christ Jesus, because he was a messenger, a greater messenger. So when in the Bible, when people had visions of angels, you know how people acted? They acted with reverence. Due regard, they paid attention to what was stated. You don't ever find anybody having a a visitation with an angel and then they walk away and say, I I don't remember a thing the man said to me or what he said. They have an idea. Now, there have been instances like with uh, Samson's parents where an angel appeared and then they said, could you come back again? Okay. But when an angelic visitation occurs, people are mesmerized. So this is what Paul is saying. You have to be able to look beyond the physical part of a person's body. And the scripture says we don't know anybody after the flesh. So we don't care about the color of our hair, how tall, how short, how round, how thin we are. What's of value is what we have to say about God. That's what, that really is what is of the most important Value and when an angel of the Lord comes on the scene, then we should act with due regard. Now, if he says that about an angel, then he mentions Christ Jesus. How did how did people act when Christ came around? They were excited. He's the only man I've ever heard of in my life that preached for three days and nobody went home. I've never heard of anybody in history of the church. That just go out on the side of a hill like Jesus did, and for seventy-two hours. That means if you if you needed a break, you just got up on your own and you went and did what you needed to do, and you come back if you wanted to grab something to eat. I guess you could have, but he preached for three days, and then afterwards he said to the disciples, "Now would be a good time to feed these folks. Give them something to eat." I said, "What are you talking about? We're as hungry as they are. As far as we are from the market." We don't, you think my pockets are that big we can feed all these people? And he was able to bless them folks with the little bit that a child had brought. Now, think about it. If I said to you, I'm really enjoying this Bible study, why don't we just do this for 72 hours? It's nonstop. I'm just going to start at Genesis 1, and after 72 hours, I'm going to stop. We'll see how far we get. I guarantee you that we wouldn't even make it to midnight. There'd be some of you that, Pastor, we love you. <laughs> as, as you're heading out the door. And it, and if by chance you did last through the night, when it came time to check in tomorrow at the job, then you'd be saluting me saying goodbye. You'll get to where you're going. Because I don't think it'll work work well with the boss if you say, I, I would have been here, but Pastor did a three-day Bible study. So we just decided to... to to stay there okay so here's where we will stop here in verse 15 listen to this question where 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 is then the blessedness you spake of see paul's talking about the conversation they used to have for i bear you record that if it had been possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me now there are there are bible commentators who think that because in verse 15 he mentioned his eyes that maybe that's where the infirmity was I have no idea. I have no idea. But I do know that what Paul is saying uh, to them is that there was a time when I was among you and I was so precious to you and my words were so important to you that you literally would have sacrificed for me. That's what he said. You valued me that much that you would have gone out of your way in a sense to harm yourself in order for me to benefit from what you now lack, and, and of course, that's what—that's a—that's a statement that parents <coughs> would would often make. You see, uh, people when they're rescued and, and gone through uh, terrible things and kidnapped, and you'll hear parents sometimes say something to the effect that uh, I, I told them to take me, but please leave my child. You see. Because what they're saying is that they, they want to give themselves in the place of the uh, uh, of the kid. Somebody's about to assault some kind of a child, and then here's the mom yelling out, "Not, not the child! Take me!" That kind of a thing. When, when uh, somebody is wanting to save somebody else's life, you'll you'll find the very same thing. So it's a sacrificial thing that comes to us by nature, and this doesn't really have anything to do with the gospel. This is just maternal and paternal instinct. The Bible says greater love has this great. There's no greater love than this and that somebody will lay their life down for their friend. So when you become a Christian, then sometimes there is this desire to step out there and put yourself at risk for your brother or for your sister. And that's why we've had so many martyrs in the history of the church. Yeah, because there have been people who have known That there's somebody walking through the village looking for the Christians, and if they can find any of them, they'll kill all of them. And then somebody will say, look, I've got to go out there, because if I don't go out there, they're going to eventually knock on the door of this house or this hut, and I don't want them to find all of you, and it's better if I just go out there myself. That's the sacrifice. Same thing with our, our, our soldiers overseas. Many of them know the first one through the door is probably going to be the first one shot. Yeah, they know that. And, and But still, somebody's got to be the first one through the door, and somebody has to be the second one through the door. <clears throat> somebody launches a a grenade or something like that. Everybody knows you got four or five seconds, but you usually have one military person who dives on that thing, and they take the brunt of the force of it and save everybody else. It's all by instinct. There's something sacrificial that's built into us that doesn't have anything to do with religion. It's just the fact we know these are things we have to do sometimes. But when you add the God factor in the life of somebody that has a sacrificial instinct, then it becomes even greater when you realize if my Lord and Savior could get up on the cross and die for me and I owe so much to him and I'm indebted to him, there's nothing he could ask me to do that could ever be too great. See, And this is why people go all around the world and live as missionaries. This is why people go overseas to learn foreign languages and stay there to put the Bible in that particular language. This is why people sacrifice so much of what they have so they can have extra money to give in a church or to give to missions. This is why people go out of their way to work two or three jobs so that they can make sure that their kids have a little bit extra when it comes time for them to become high schoolers. Sacrifice. Yeah. And this is what, this is what God has put inside all of us. And I pray that as we look at these verses, when we consider verse five again, to redeem them that were under the law, we'll remember that to redeem them means that he had to give his life. He had to die so that you and I could be free. Oh, it's a great day to be alive if you're alive. I'm telling you. <laughs> wow. This, this is, this is wonderful to know that we have somebody that cares about us like this. God is so great, you know, strong and powerful. Christians should not ever be discouraged. I know we are sometimes, but we don't have any reason to be discouraged. The Bible says if God is for you, see, on your side, who can be against you? Who's your enemy? The Bible says thanks be to God who causeth us to triumph in all things. All things. So you don't have a problem, you don't have a, a test, trial, a tribulation that doesn't fit into that little phrase, all things. Okay. Marital problems, all things. Sickness in our body, all things. Financial difficulties, all things. Whatever it is, God causes us to triumph. But if he does that, then he expects us to shout and praise him like we are the victors. You know, people that win battles and wars, they usually make a whole lot of noise, yeah. So that's 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 how we should be as Christians. That's why God God's not nervous when Christians do praise His name and glorify Him. And I I have this little sneaky suspicion that when we get to heaven, it's not going to be that quiet. Yeah, there there's probably people now that when they got to heaven. If they had a chance to be around the throne or hear the angels or hear the other folks worship, they probably looked around and said, this isn't anything like the Episcopalian church when I grew up. (laughs) See? That's it. It's a whole lot different, folks. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful this evening to have this opportunity to look into your word. How wonderful it is to be able to look into Galatians and know that you made sacrifices for us. And we're happy. And we're grateful. And we pray that we never take you for granted in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen."